Good to be with you all this morning. The weather this weekend has been utterly different than the weather last weekend. Um, I've just got to say, I know that many of you were not here last week because many of you had lost power. I know that many people were without power for days. Uh, and so hopefully it's back on. That's, I think, maybe a great way uh, for the Pacific Northwest to say Happy New Year. You know, here's the wind, here's the rain, and the Christmas lights are off, whether you like it or not. Um, So here we are. Um, I'm wondering, as we are all sort of recovering from many holidays and, and New Year's and all kinds of stuff, did any of you do any traveling over the last month or so? We've got a few people who've, who've gone around. Um, you always have to be careful when you're traveling this time of year, especially if you're going through the mountain passes or if you're going to someplace new. There's something that I often take for granted when I'm on my regular commute that becomes really important whenever I'm going to new places, and that's paying attention to the signs. You got to pay attention to the signs. Even with really fancy GPS systems on our phones, it's still really important to watch the signs because they will tell you where you are and they will tell you where you need to go. And they often tell you how to go from where you are to where you're trying to go. So signs are really important. And I remember learning this ages ago when I was first in driver's ed. I was probably a few weeks into my driver's training, and I was going on a drive with my driving instructor, and we had gotten to the point of getting on highways. So I was feeling pretty confident. You know, okay, I'm on a freeway now. I know how to do this. This is great. So we entered the highway, and the instructor asks me, all right, so do you want to try something easy, or do you want something tricky? And feeling confident, I said, well, of course, give me something tricky. You know, why not? And so he says, okay, stay on Highway 59, headed north. Um, I've got a photo of, of this part of the highway that I was on. Here we are. You can't really see it too well, uh, but this is where I was driving. And I thought, okay, this is really easy. Stay on Highway 59 north. All I got to do is stay where I am. But if you look closely at that picture, the three right lanes all exit to a tollway. So if you want to stay on 59, you got to get over a few lanes to the left. So feeling confident and comfortable, I just kept on going, and yeah, I missed it. I went right onto that tollway, and the driving instructor quietly says, well, you missed it. And I learned that it's important to pay attention to signs. You see, signs are important. They give you really crucial information. And they give you a particular kind of information. You see, signs are not an end in themselves. They are meant to lead you somewhere. They don't just have trivia facts or fortune cookie sayings. There's something that we need to follow. I've got another example. I remember when I first moved up to Seattle from Texas, and we took a long road trip, going all the way from central Texas, traversing nearly 2,000 miles. We stopped at various different parks along the way, national parks and so on and so forth. And after passing through Oregon and to the southern part of eastern Washington, we eventually got to Interstate 90, and I saw this sign, 
And so this is the very first time that I saw the word Seattle. I saw, oh, hey, look, Seattle's finally on the map. You know, we finally have a sign that says Seattle. Now, imagine for a moment if upon seeing that sign, we had just pulled over on the side of the road and finished our journey. Look, it says Seattle. We've made it. Here we are. That would be crazy, right? Because a sign is not an end in itself. It's meant to lead you somewhere. Yes, it says Seattle. That's the first sign I encountered that told me Seattle was there. But there are some arrows that say, keep going. Seattle is this way. So you don't pull over and set up camp because you saw a sign. You follow the sign to where it's leading you. So that's what signs are all about. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, This morning, we're beginning a new series in the Gospel of John. So we're going to be in John for the next little while. And the book of John has often been called the Gospel of Signs. And it's called this for a couple of reasons because of the language that John uses, as well as the story that John tells. So first, there's the language. Okay, all four Gospels tell stories about Jesus. They tell stories about Jesus doing various miraculous things like healing, casting out demons, or feeding people. And most of them call them miracles or wonders or something like that. But John, throughout his Gospel, consistently calls these signs. In chapter 2, after Jesus turns water into wine, it says this was the first of his signs that he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then in chapter 4, after healing a Roman official's son, it says this was the second sign that Jesus did. And so on it goes throughout the gospel. John consistently uses the word sign to describe what it is that Jesus is doing. And so this is one of the reasons why the Gospel of John is often called the Gospel of Signs. But it's also because of the whole structure of the story in the Gospel of John. For example, in chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. He does a sign, and then it's followed by this discussion. And this is how the rest of the book goes. There's often a sign and then a discussion. A sign and then a discussion. So Like I said, he heals a man on the Sabbath. It's followed by a discussion about whether or not Jesus has the authority to heal a man on the Sabbath. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000, and it's followed by a discussion about how Jesus is the bread of life. In chapter 9, he heals a blind man and then has a conversation or a discussion about spiritual sight. In chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then the rest of the book is about Jesus' own death and resurrection, which I believe is the ultimate sign, right? And so John is called the gospel of signs because of its language and because of the structure, the way that he tells the story. And this is significant because signs are not just fun stories, These things are not just good works. They're not publicity stunts. These signs that Jesus does are not an end in themselves. They're signs that are meant to lead us into deeper knowledge of who Jesus is and who we are called to be in him. 
And so at the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, these signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that through believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole point of the book of John. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each one of these signs, one week at a time throughout the Gospel of John. But this morning, we're going to begin with the very introduction of John, and we're going to see some of these themes at work. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, We have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for these signs. God, I pray that as we study them and reflect on them over the coming months, that they would lead us to you, that we would not just learn about them, but follow where they lead. As we reflect on these words, I pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So these opening words of the Gospel of John are rich and poetic, and we could spend weeks meditating on them and reflecting on them, and I encourage you to. Perhaps throughout this series, take some time to look back at these opening words from time to time over the coming weeks This morning, as we look at them, I just want to point out a few things that that sort of stand out to me in the text. 
Because as I see it, there are two things that John makes really clear here. And there's a third thing that is sort of confusing and seems a little bit out of place in these opening words. So two things that are clear and one thing that seems out of place. Let's take a look. The first thing that John makes really clear from the very start is who Jesus is. So last week, if you were here, we looked at Matthew's story of the wise men coming to visit Jesus. And we asked the question, who are these guys? But the question that follows after their visit really is, well, who is this child that some people traveled across much of the known world to come and see? And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew kind of unfolds that story, begins to answer that question, who is this child? And we see hints of it whenever the voice of God speaks at Jesus' baptism or whenever Satan questions Jesus, are you his son? But throughout the story, you mostly just watch and wonder who this person is, who Jesus is. And then Luke similarly tells a story with these kinds of little episodes that we watch and wonder who Jesus is. And as you know, by now he opens with a spectacular musical arrangement, song after song. And then like Matthew, he tells the story of the baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased and the wilderness temptation, and so on. And then we have Mark, right, who doesn't even give us any kind of an intro. He just drops us right into the action, and we see Jesus at work. And the point of all of these stories, of all of our gospel stories, is to probe that question, who is Jesus? Who is this person? And each of the gospels goes about answering that question in its own way. But John John here cuts straight to the chase. He doesn't start like Mark with Jesus' ministry. He doesn't start like Matthew and Luke going back to the story of Jesus' birth. He goes back to the very, very beginning. And in verse 1, he makes it clear who it is that his story is about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's gospel from start to finish makes it absolutely clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory. And at the very end of this opening section, verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God but it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart or at the Father's side, who has made him known. So Jesus truly is, as Paul writes in Colossians, the image of the invisible God. Or as it's written in Hebrews, Jesus truly is the exact imprint of God's very being. So no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. No one has seen God, but the word became flesh, and now we have seen his glory. What was once unseen has now become the Son to dwell among us. So if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. 
Throughout the Gospel of John, there are these moments where Jesus says, the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. And he says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So if you want to know God, then look to Jesus. That's the core of Christian faith. That's what we're all about You know, last week we talked about epiphanies and this question, who is the one worthy of our worship? Well, here in our text, the real epiphany is that the one worthy of our worship is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, come to dwell among us. Jesus is the one worthy of our worship. And so this is the first thing that John makes really clear. And it leads us to the second thing that's very clear in this passage and throughout the Gospel of John, because the first is that Jesus is God, and the second is our response to Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, right? So it's clear that Jesus is God. And the second thing it's clear is that our response to Jesus should be to believe. And this is clear throughout the whole gospel Just think of those famous words in chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Or remember what I said earlier, John's statement toward the very end of the book. At the end of chapter 20, he writes, these signs are written so that you may come to believe. And by believing, have life. John makes it clear that our response to Jesus is to believe in him. But what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in him? That's something that we've probably heard lots of if you've been around church. What does that mean? Well, in order to dig into this, I need to tell you a little bit more about the word underneath that, what we have in the Greek, because this word And the Greek gets translated a bunch of different ways. The one we have here translated as believe occurs as a verb, it occurs as a noun, and it occurs as an adjective. And each time it gets translated differently. So as a verb, like it is here, it's often translated believe. But then as a noun, the same word is translated faith. And then as an adjective, it's often translated faithful. And so why faith and faithful, but but then believe is the verb? Well, we don't really have a verb version of faith, do we? But so much gets lost in translation whenever we say believe. I don't think it's nearly deep enough to adequately translate this word because for us, belief is often lost to cognition, right? Belief just has to do with what you know, trivia and facts to some kind of mental assent. 
But belief was never meant to be a mental assent. Salvation doesn't have to do with what you know, but rather who you trust. It's not so much a mental assent as it is a humble descent. As we laid down our lives before Christ and worship, trusting him, being faithful to him. So belief doesn't have to do with what you know, but rather who you are and ultimately who you give your life to. Like road signs, right? It's not just about having good information, but following them that actually makes a difference. The cop is not satisfied if you just know the speed limit. You have to be driving the speed limit, right? Or the road itself is not satisfied if you know that it's turning because you've seen those yellow arrows pointing to the left. You actually have to turn your wheel, otherwise you end up in the ditch. That's how it is with belief. It's not just knowing. It's truly knowing. And so I think the word trust might be a better translation. Because trust is a noun and a verb. And it's more than just something we know. Because it calls us into who we are as people who trust Jesus. So our response to Jesus as God is not just knowing about it, but living like it's true with lives of worship laid down before him. So these are the two things that I see as being really clear in the opening passage throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is God, and we respond to that by believing in him or by trusting him. But there's also one thing in the midst of this opening passage that seems really out of place, and that's where I want to end our time together. Because this whole opening part of John, it's very poetic. It's this passage about the word and the light that shined in the darkness and became flesh so we could see his glory and believe and become children of God, right? That's a good summary of this. But right in the middle of all of that poetry about word and light, there's this seeming interruption. It happens in verse 6. Right? If you went straight from verse 5 to verse 9, it would flow really smoothly. Verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness. And then you skip down to verse 9, the true light was coming into the world. Right? That, that would make so much sense. But here we have verses 6 through 8 kind of flown into the middle of it. And it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. So right in the middle of all of this poetic talk of Jesus, who is God, he throws in this guy named John. And just for clarity's sake, this is not the John who's writing the book of John. This is John the Baptist. Why does he do this? Why does he just throw this guy into the middle of, of what otherwise would have been a really beautiful poem about Jesus, right? It seems so out of place. This is the kind of thing that you would get marks off in English class for, 
right? You got to stay on focus, narrow your thesis, all that kind of stuff. Here, here's John just kind of throwing stuff in. Why is it here? Well, I think it's significant. And I think that it's inserted right here in the midst of all this lofty talk of Jesus. And it may seem out of place to us, but it's right there in its proper place for God. Because this is who God is. God is a God who works through witnesses. God is a God who does not just do things on his own. He sent a man named John who came as a witness, who was not the light, but testified to the light. And this word witness, just like the word sign, is going to come up over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. Later on, Jesus says that Moses was a witness to him. Later on, he says that the scriptures, the law, is a witness to him. And as it says in verse 8, these are things that are not the light in and of themselves, but they testify to the light. And it is the way of God to work through signs and to do work through witnesses. God does not only make himself known by coming to dwell among us, but also by being testified of through us. And we'll see this again as we look throughout the coming weeks at some of the signs. It's the way of God to work with people and through people. When Jesus turns the water to wine, we'll see that it's not him, but others who pour the water into the jars. When Jesus heals the lame man, we'll see that He doesn't lift the man to his feet, but he simply tells the man, get up and walk. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, we see that he begins with bread and fish from a kid in the crowd. You see, signs don't only point to who Jesus is. They also show us who we are in him. And it is the way of God to not only work for us, but also through us. So Jesus is God, and we respond to that by believing in him. But as believers, we become witnesses to him. We join in with the signs, and we ourselves point to Jesus. So that's the question that I want to leave us with this morning. How might we be a sign that points to Jesus. Knowing that we are not the light ourselves, how might we be those who point to the light? What does it look like for the Church of Christ at Federal Way to point people to Jesus? As we provide food for kids across the street, as we use our building to host community lunches and AA meetings, as we gather each week to worship and throughout the week in various small groups for study and fellowship, how can these things be more than just stuff that we do, but trickle down into who we really are? How can we be a community that points people constantly toward Christ that points one another and ultimately points the whole world to Jesus. How can we be a sign?
ourselves? Well, I have some ideas about that, and I'm eager to hear yours too. But for now, I hope that this is all something that we can discover together throughout this coming year. May it be so. Amen.